morning and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host, William Hill, and this is our first summer edition, as it were, here at the seminary. And just because it's summer doesn't mean things slow down. In fact, it seems in some sense that they've actually sped up in other areas. For instance, we are offering two summer classes here at the seminary, and if you're interested uh, to get interested in getting more information about those classes, you can simply go to our website at gpts.edu. Dr. Piper will be doing a class on preaching, and Dr. Shaw is going to be doing a class on the book of Ecclesiastes. So take advantage of those opportunities that the seminary is offering this summer. You can get continuing education credit for them. As I said, more information on the seminary website at gpts.edu. In addition, don't forget about the mobile app. We've had over 900 downloads since it's been released, and I'm very encouraged by that. It actually has exceeded my expectations as to what this app would do for others. And Dr. Pipe has handed me his BlackBerry phone across the table because it doesn't work on his BlackBerry, which, um, well, we won't talk about that. That's another subject for another day. But anyway, yes, you if, disobey. if you're interested in getting the mobile app, you can do so at the confessingourhope.com website. All the information is available there. While you're on the GPTS or on the confessingourhope.com website, you will notice that we are uh, starting today a new feature of the podcast, one that we've been discussing uh, for quite a few months. I've been reminded numerous times about this feature. This is not my idea. This was actually the man who's sitting across from me, his idea. And the feature is simple. If you have theological or practical questions related to whatever, you can simply email me at confessingourhope at gpts.edu with your question. Now, what will happen with that question is it goes into a pool of other questions, and Dr. Piper will then select a handful and each month we will deal with those selected questions. Now, what's the, the benefit for you? Well, there's two things. One, you get your question answered, hopefully. Um, and I say that tongue-in-cheek. But anyway, you'll understand in a minute. Second thing is that anybody who submits a question that we read on the air will be sent a free book from our bookstore. Now, I have posted this morning the list of books that have been given to me from the bookstore so you can choose your book, and we will send it to you, providing we read your question on the air. So, again, it's very simple. Simply send your question to me. There's a form on the website. You send it in, and um, we will look at it. And if it's selected, then you will receive that free book sent to you, postpaid, the whole deal. So, new feature. It's called Faith and Practice, and today is segment number one of that particular feature. So get involved. This is a way for you, the listener, to get involved in the program and to interact with us. And so we're not driving the ship necessarily on these broadcasts. You have some say in what we will discuss. So today, as I said, we're going to start this first segment. Dr. Piper is my guest, and he will be my guest for each one of these segments. He will be answering your questions. He is the president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary for those who have never listened to this broadcast and have been living under a rock. So there you go. So, Dr. Piper, it's good to have you on the program today. And um, obviously from the list of questions, we received um, nine questions in the last few weeks um, related to this segment that we're trying to do. And so I was very excited about that. And some of these questions are very, very uh, good. And I thought um, 
just for the sake of time, we'll just jump right in and, and start with the first question, which is near and dear to your heart, I know. And in fact, it has to do with a book you wrote on the subject as well. So let me just read the question for you, and I will give the, uh, the, the individual who sent the question in and where he's from, and then I will read the question, and then you can, of course, respond to it as well. So Christopher writes in from Dayton, Tennessee, and he writes in, Dear Dr. Piper, I read your book, The Lord's Day, to my family for a series in our family worship. It was very edifying. I especially appreciated your analogy of the Sabbath as a park and one wrong way keeping of Sabbath as putting a, quote, fence around the park. Certainly seems that the Pharisees had built quite a fence around all the moral law with the Talmud and other traditions of the rabbis. I was attempting to explain to my young children some of the abuses of the Pharisees in their Talmudic rabbinical traditions regarding the Sabbath. Could you tell us more about these extra-biblical laws that were designed to help, quote-unquote, believers keep, quote-unquote, the Sabbath. The Talmud is so vast that it's hard to find those references. Also, in the second part of the question, do you have any book or site that you could direct us to so that we could understand this better? So, Dr. Piper, how would you answer that? Thank you, Christopher, and thank you, Bill. It's a very good question. I also want to commend you for the practice of serious family worship. Thank the Lord for that and hope you will per- persist and persevere. Seek God's grace. Uh, seek the hearts of your children. Uh, in the book, I use the illustration uh, with respect to the um, sowing and reaping. The law of God says that they could not plant seed or harvest on uh, the Sabbath. Well, the rabbis uh, in the uh, traditions of, of the church let me back up and give a principle. What they wanted to do was get people backed up from uh, any possibility of breaking the law. Imagine you have your children at the Grand Canyon. You can no longer walk up to the uh, lip of the cliff. There's a fence that keeps you away from the edge. So think about uh, these traditions and these Talmudic laws as ways to keep people from ever breaking uh, the law of God. The problem is that men considering themselves wiser than God, Jesus says that when you use the traditions of men, whether they were Pharisaic traditions or whether they're traditions today in fundamentalism, uh, you first begin to um, weaken the law. You eventually abrogate and nullify the law of God. And the Sabbath is an area. Just in Christ's day, the real heart of the Sabbath was lost because of these uh, man-made laws. Today, people that have laws about uh, the use of alcohol or going to a movie or or other things like that, are often right at the front of the train on flaunting and breaking the Sabbath. Now, in the book, dealing in Matthew 12, the Pharisees passing through the field uh, pluck some grain, rub it between their fingers, and that was considered to be threshing, uh, and then to eat it. And that's what, But that's not forbidden by God's law. It's forbidden by Talmudic uh, tradition. So, to pick something to eat it, rub it between your fingers, those would be considered acts of um, threshing, uh, harvesting and threshing. Now, there's hundreds of these laws. Uh, They worked out even how far one could walk on the Sabbath, and they actually would, from their house, and so what they would do, they wanted to go farther, they'd they'd walk that distance and place a piece of their furniture, uh, and 
work out their trip in that way. So they had very ingenious ways of getting around their laws. But I did get the resource for you that can do much more than what I can do here on the podcast, um, um, Christopher. So um, on the Internet, Internet Sacred Text Archive, Internet Sacred Text Archive, go in there and look at the Babylonian Talmud. And the very first track on in the ta- uh, Babylonian Talmud is on the Sabbath. Mm. And so you can look, get that up on the Internet and look at that with your children. Mm. That's very helpful. And um, just a follow-up question for you, Dr. Piper. This is coming from me, of course. Um, what kind of modern things have has the church, have we sort of replaced the Pharisees' rules and regulations that weren't necessarily requirements of the scriptures, what are some of the maybe modern things that we have done that parallels that, but in our modern culture? Well, you know, the uh, what the Orthodox Jews do, because they're not allowed supposedly to kindle a fire, is they will not turn on light switches. My, I have a refrigerator that has a um, Sabbath switch on it. Really? Uh, yeah, and so modern manufacturers will actually, I don't really know if that means the light doesn't come on when you open it, it puts it into an energy-saving mode or whatever. Some Orthodox Jews actually pay people to come into their house oh, and turn the lights on uh, for them. Uh, and that's it's just an extension of this. Kindling a fire was a good bit of work. Uh, the fires were kept going, so that was it was due to... to uh, carelessness that a fire went out and then to go out and gather firewood and kindle a fire was much different from turning on light switches. Moreover, uh, in our culture, electricity is a, a matter of necessity. It's mm-hmm. not, and, and oftentimes it can be a matter of mercy if a person's on oxygen or some other medical device depending mm-hmm. upon electricity. So, now, uh, but we hear, you know, there are those people today that will argue with me, well, if you're right, we shouldn't use electricity. Why are you using electricity? Well, I use electricity because I think electricity is necessary for the proper keeping of the Sabbath. If you live in the South uh, and your church is not air-conditioned, uh, people are not going to be able to worship God and the unconverted aren't going to want to come because it's mm. going to be 90 degrees inside the building where you're worshiping. What we often hear are, though, the reasons not to keep the Sabbath carefully. So, for example, uh, I hear people say, well, I take exception to this position of the Sabbath because I think I can take a nap on uh, Sunday. Well, that's part of keeping the Sabbath. If that nap is necessary for a person to serve God, to go back and worship, Sunday's the only day I take a nap. Mm-hmm. It might just be a 10-minute power nap that's preferable. But even if I'm not preaching Sunday night, if I don't get that nap, I have to fight sleep in church. And so it's a deed of mercy uh, and necessity. So those would be some things. Yeah, I've even heard people say driving a car would violate the Sabbath under certain principles that they glean from, again, from this pharisaical ritualism that, you know, in our society, going to church, it's not like we can just walk down the street. Uh, we have to travel, and this is the way we do it. So, um, But it's a good question, and again, I echo Dr. Piper's comments about the family worship uh, goal and priority. Um, I know if Dr. Beakey were here, he would be very excited and probably grinning from ear to ear. Arthur writes in from Middleton, Pennsylvania, with um, 
Well, this is an interesting question, considering all the controversy and discussion that's been had, especially in the Internet world on this subject. Here is the question. What is your view of David Vandrunen's Two Kingdoms theology? It seems to be gaining support, but I am not so sure he is on target. Very good, Art. A little background for our listeners. Uh, Dr. Van Drunen, a very godly young man, teaches at Westminster Seminary in California and did a lot of his doctoral work in the area of uh, natural law. He has developed a thesis that a number of his fellow faculty members hold to and that Jesus Christ, as the mediatorial king, is only uh, over the church. So that's his kingdom. And that uh, rest of culture, society, and the world is simply under the kingship of Jehovah. Now, that seems to contradict a number of passages of Scripture that speak of Christ's kingship being over all the nations of the earth, of his ruling and providence, and over all things Mm. for the sake of the church. So historically, the church has seen that Christ's mediatorial kingship is over everything for the sake of the church. Now, a good facet or aspect of, so so the two kingdoms enter, the kingdom of the church ruled by Christ through his word, and rest of the kingdom of natural man ruled by God through natural law. Now, a, a positive thing that comes out of that is an emphasis on what we teach at the seminary here, and that is the spirituality of the church. It's not the church's responsibility to be involved in politics or social justice or poverty alleviation. The church has been entrusted with responsibility to be God's agent for the gathering and perfecting of the saints. There's some diaconal work in connection with that to the household of God in the broader world, but that diaconal work even should be coupled with gospel intentions and motives. So we agree there. But then we disagree from that point forward because, uh, in my opinion, their approach then is the integration of the sufficiency of Scripture. Basically, they're saying that Scripture does not speak to economics, Mm. our political theory, our education, uh, that these are things that we derive uh, from natural law and some of them have gone so far then to be in favor of civil unions or civil uh, homosexual marriages because, after all, uh, we don't apply these scriptural laws to the world. Uh, there's a lot of other difficulties there. Uh, they teach that the um, dominion mandate hmm. uh, in uh, Genesis one and two was part of the covenant of works and thus broken in Adam, fulfilled in Christ, no longer responsible. So the Christian, according to him, does not have a dominion responsibility. They have a, uh, a weakened view of the Ten Commandments. And Dr. Van Drunen will say, I think, a couple of times in his chapter on the Sermon on the Mount that the Mosaic Law has been abrogated with a very broad brush, not simply the ceremonial and judicial aspects of it. 
And he says that the traditions there that Christ is dealing with, you've heard said, but I say to you, were not the traditions of the elders to which we just referred, but were in fact mosaic legislation. And so there's a, a weakened view then with respect to the, the Ten Commandments in the life of the believer and the application then of these things to uh, the world. And so those are some of the basic problems. It is gaining some support. Particularly an issue in the um, United Reformed Churches of North America and in the Orthodox uh, Presbyterian Church. Dr. Pipe, I want to back up just just for sake of clarity um, in relationship to this question. You made the comment that the church should not be involved in politics. Now you didn't qualify that statement, and I know I know what you mean by that. Are you saying that people in the church should not be involved in politics, or thank you, or yeah, good. Thank you for the follow-up. I was using the church there as the uh, organization, the institution of uh, the gathered people of God under officers. Uh, in fact, here's, here's exactly, I'm glad the question also helps otherwise. So individual Christians should be involved mm. in various cultural and political activities according to their gifts and callings. The ministerial role of the church is to teach and equip them mm, mm-hmm. to think God's thoughts and how to apply those thoughts. And I consider that kingdom activity then. The church doesn't uh, do sidewalk counseling and pick it in the abortion clinic, but Christians should. And when a Christian does that, they're acting as members of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is very clear that, yes, the church is his kingdom, but his kingdom is in our hearts. So anything I do, I'm doing as a subject of Christ, and that should be considered kingdom mm-hmm. activity. So in contrast to two kingdom, we would assert that there is, uh, in every area, every discipline, a biblical foundation. The Bible doesn't speak exhaustively to uh, other areas outside of ethics and uh, doctrine, but it does speak. And when it speaks, it becomes an infallible word. And that's the platform by which we develop a philosophy in that area. Economics. When the Bible talks about um, a proper currency and, and proper weights and things like that, there are economic principles that can be derived there in terms of currency. When Proverbs talks about it's wrong to hoard things, to hold back commodity, to manipulate the market. A couple of Christians did that numbers of years ago with silver. Uh, Proverbs says that's a sin. So there's economic principles in the Scripture, uh, and a Christian working in those areas needs to begin with those principles. And we look then at general revelation, what they want to call natural law, through the spectacles of Scripture, and can make other judgments as well. Now, they're not infallible, uh, but we still want to take a an attempt at developing Christian philosophy in all these areas, because we are subjects of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Very good. Yeah, I just wanted to clarify that, because certainly there are plenty of Christians operating in those different realms in in our society, um, and as you have just said, they should take the principles of the kingdom and pl- employ them in those realms. In other words, honesty as a businessman, or if you're going to be a politician, you don't lie. Um, and, well, well, in fact, Van Drunen actually makes the statement that there are more 
productive, ethical, non-Christian workers in the workplace than Christians. Well, that's a shame on Christians. That should never be the case. Right. Uh, but that don't mean we give up our philosophy because of people's errors or hypocrisy. That's right. The next question, Dr. Piper, is one that um, I will admit um, when I got it, I was, uh, well, <laughs> a little fearful in some sense. And and, um, and I know we commented off the air about this briefly um, in a joking manner. But um, anyway, Jesse writes in from Miami, Florida, and asks the question, what are the major differences between the OPC and the PCA? Now, OPC, um, for those listening who don't know, um, that's the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. The PCA is the Presbyterian Church in America. Um, but what are the major differences? And I'm interested in the, the major differences. <laughs> the major differences. And by the way, I think today is the 77th birthday of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, and they're meeting in their General Assembly uh, in California. And the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in America will meet here in Greenville uh, next Tuesday. Let me start with um, the fact that we are sister denominations. We've got a little different origin in that the Orthodox Presbyterian, as I said, started 77 years ago. They came out of um, what was known as the Northern Presbyterian Church, Presbyterian Church in the United States of America, um, and uh, which was a much more liberal denomination than the Presbyterian Church U.S., which was called the Southern Presbyterian Church, which was primarily in uh, the southern states. The PCA then, in 1971, in December, formed out of the Southern Presbyterian Church. So um, we came out of two different theological backgrounds in terms of the uh, some of the approaches, um, and those things have probably to some degree created differences, and there's obviously at the heart of both denominations some cultural um, differences. Both denominations are now national and in Canada, as well as mission programs around the world, but the majority of the PCA churches are in the South, and there is still, as much as some people don't like it, a Southern flavor. The Orthodox Presbyterian Church began primarily in the Northeast, Upper Midwest, and Out West, and there is more of um, a culturally um, a bit of a different flavor there as well. The OPC came out impoverished. They came out in the 30s, and only one of their buildings, one of their congregations kept its building, and that's because the church in congregation in Portland, Oregon, had a 99-year lease on an old historic building. Hmm. And so it, it came out in the Depression with no property whatsoever, which also helps us understand that there's probably some, uh, in the older generation still, what we refer to as a Depression mentality with respect to spending and funds and stuff like that. Now, historically, because of those uh, uh, theological differences in the mother denominations, the parent denominations. I think historically the PCA was much more aggressive in foreign missions, uh, had a certain evangelical uh, emphasis uh, in uh, what they were doing. And the OPC in its early days, well, its earliest days was a bit more, 
only half a step removed from fundamentalism. But as it developed, it became much more doctrinal, maybe less practical. Now, I don't think either one of those differences continue uh, today, but in some people's minds, uh, they, they do. The OPC is doing an excellent job with missions, and actually, they, their missions functions much more on the principles of the old Southern Presbyterian Church than does the missions of the PCA. And so there's kind of been a changing of horses in some of these things. The PCA does its missions much more like broad evangelicals in terms of you have missionaries raise their own support, and uh, there's you can just about do anything you want to in the mission field. There's not the same kind of emphasis, perhaps, on church uh, church planting. Uh, doctrinally, both denominations hold to the American edition of the Westminster Confession of Faith as corrected after it had been um, weakened at the turn of the 20th century. And I believe they hold, we hold to exactly the same uh, editions of the edition of the Confession of Faith. In the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, there is a greater doctrinal faithfulness. Mm-hmm. And there is a greater uh, faithfulness to uh, a Presbyterian worship regulated by Scripture. In the PCA, there is a, uh, a greater, there's a broader approach with respect to the confessions and c- confession and catechisms, and that creates a lot of, of room for a, in my mind, unhealthy diversity. So in the PCA, we would have things that we won't try to explain today, but emerging church and a lot of talk about being missional and social justice and things like this, that... Um, Going back to the last question, I think don't really should not have a place in the in the church courts. Um, but we've grown a lot closer together. the The more reformed wing of the PCA is much closer now to the brothers in the OPC. One area of similarity, unfortunately, is in the area of uh, approaches to creation. The OPC and the PCA both have adopted reports allowing for um, some figurative approaches to Genesis chapter 1. And that's unfortunate for both to have done that. And it might even be that the mainstream of the PCA is perhaps stricter on six-day creation than the OPC. I don't really know that scientifically. But now, as the PCA has to wrestle with those in our bounds who are teaching theistic evolution, the OPC is not allowing uh, that at this point to, to develop. So when I go to a, a, a city, I'm going to check. Those are the two churches I'm going to seek to worship in. Um, but I, you, you can no longer just go to a Presbyterian church today and think you're going to be comfortable. So, in fact, in the seminary, on our website, in our church resource section, we have a travel log. Mm. And as churches that uh, would hold to a, um, a biblical Presbyterian worship contact us, we post them on the website. So you get ready to take a trip, check the website. If your church isn't on there and you're worshiping God, in a, a biblical press chain manner, then uh, please notify us, and we'd be glad to add your name. Hmm. That's very good, and that that is quite helpful. I'm I'm a member of one of the 
prominent email list. And this question comes up quite often, actually. Um, I have a friend or I have a member who's going to be on vacation or they're moving. And does anybody have a church to recommend? You know, it's sad in some sense that you actually have to go through that. Um, I, I just can't say, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a ruling elder in the Presbyterian Church in America. And so when you go to uh, Biloxi, uh, just find a PCA church and you'll be fine. I mean, that's just not the case anymore, um, as for some of the reasons we've just highlighted. Um, now, you're only using Biloxi, Bill, as uh, a generic illustration, it just popped not in, a specific. It just popped it's into my head. It's actually a pretty good in, in church all, in Biloxi. In all honesty, it just <laughs> popped into my head. Don't ask me why. Um, I could have said Rochester, New York, but that's northern, so we don't want to go there. But You're from there. I am from there. Um, but people knew that already. But but there are some differences. One of the things that Dr. Pipe has, has highlighted, it, which is, I think, a, a concern for both of us sitting at this table and for others as well, is the issue of worship. Um, uh, the PCA it takes a very nominative approach to worship, generally speaking. Um, there are some very strong regulative principle PCA congregations. I was a part of one, um, but uh, that is just not the case uh, in, a lot of, in a lot of cases, uh, sadly. Uh, when the OPC tends to hold that pretty tightly, um, they're not perfect, uh, but there is no such thing as the perfect denomination. So... Um, but there are some clear differences and um, in those areas. Um, but doctrinally, at least on paper, uh, we hold to the same thing, at least on paper. So uh, there's a little difference in the way we do the General Assembly. Um, maybe comment on that, Dr. Piper? Yeah, I would. Um, the OPC follows the more historic press train practice of having what we would re- refer to as a delegated assembly. In Presbyterianism, uh, all the elders are active in the session in the local church. That session then selects certain of its ruling elders to send to the presbytery, which is the regional court or church. And then the presbytery sends representatives or delegates to the General Assembly. Each presbytery, if I understand it correctly, has the same amount, and the presbytery covers the expense. It is the assembly then has a hundred and something voting people, mm-hmm. and so they have much more serious uh, debate, uh, exegetical theological discussion. The PCA, uh, partly in reaction to its past, started as a grassroots assembly, which meant that every church was also able to send ruling elders as well as ministers to the general assembly. In the early days, that was fine. Now, with... Uh, uh, a few thousand ruling elders and ministers, uh, it's difficult. But the PCA had a good thing because of its, um, again, something that came out of the Southern Presbyterian Church, its approach to uh, committees. The church was to be run by committees elected by the denomination, not by boards and agencies and quasi-independent committees or executive directors. And early on, then, we had committee commissioners that carefully reviewed the work of our major committees. Uh, the committee commissioners still are in existence. They don't function that way any longer. There's very little review. I was chairman for about seven years of one of the major committees in nomination, and it got worse every year. They did not want accountability. And without accountability, particularly in our system, as large as it is, another problem now with our system is, is that the ruling elder attendance is declining increasingly every year so that, as is attendance overall, 
Mm-hmm. And so that uh, last year at the assembly, uh, there was just around 300 ruling elders out of 1,100 voting people. That's wrong. It's supposed to be equal, um, if not more ruling elders. Uh, now, I think one side of the church thinks that that's because there's ruling elders don't like business, but I think it's the other way around. I think a serious ruling elder would be glad to come to business. But uh, frankly, you can come now to a PCA assembly. Uh, it always meets in a high-rent district. And you stay in, uh, I mean, if you're going to stay anywhere near the assembly, because it's downtown, you stay in expensive motels, you pay $400 a person from church just for the privilege to vote. So we're talking about, when you put in transportation, um, you know, at least two or $3,000 for a church to send a minister and a ruling elder. Not to mention the fact that they have to take probably take vacation time. Right, and they take and, vacation and, time. But now, pay. and what we have now is it's structured to such a degree that you might do 10 or 12 hours of real business. You could come in on a Wednesday morning and be there Wednesday afternoon and Thursday, go home Thursday night, and have been a faithful churchman. We've turned it into a convention. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that attracts serious people. I think it keeps ruling elders away. Uh, many ministries use it as a vacation. They bring their families, and they're often off the floor at some sports activity or something like that. So I'm advocating, A, that we go to a delegated assembly. Um, if they want to have the convention, do it every three years and have all the hoopla. Mm. Uh, we've got to make a change, but the powers higher up don't seem to be interested in making changes that will really facilitate accountability. Now, that's that's my opinion. Yep. So all that being said, and both men at this table, myself and Dr. Piper, are both um, in the PCA, just for in the interest of full disclosure. <laughs> um, but we are honest. I think we're, we approach this thing with, uh, with honesty. Um, you know, I love my denomination, but they have issues, uh, and some of them have been detailed here. Um, now, I, I love the OPC as well. I'm not in it. I came out of the OPC, uh, and some may know that story, but they have issues too, okay? As I said, there's no perfect denomination. But in some of these critical areas, worship, the assembly, and how the courts of the church are done, the OPC seems to have a little better control of it. Now, they are a smaller denomination. Does that factor into it? I think it does. Um, the bigger you are, the tougher the animal is to control. So, um, But there's other factors. But it's a good question, um, especially if you're considering, you know, where do I want to take my family in worship God? That's what you're going to be doing week after week. And for me, the issue fundamentally is, does the church seek to worship God the way he has said he is to be worshipped? Because that's what you're going to be doing every single week. So good question, Jesse. I appreciate you writing in, and hopefully we have answered that um, to some extent anyway, at least helped you uh, with that question. Now, that was question number five. Um, we were no, going no, to... no, we're not doing it in that order. That was just the third question we've answered. Yeah, right. You're right. All right. Next question. I think I have this correct. Okay. Yes, this is the one I was hoping um, Dr. Piper would address. Um, just for those who are listening, I had no input, as it were, as to what questions he would choose. I just gave them to him. But I did have my own personal hopes as to which question. And this was one that I was really hoping he would deal with um, on the program. Abby writes in from Sanford, Florida, another Floridian 
listening to the podcast, and she asked this question. It's a great question. How should Christians best respond to the questions of God's sovereignty and goodness in the face of evil in light of the recent tornado disaster? And she's referring to the issues in Moore, Oklahoma, uh, where that category, I think it was an EF5 tornado touchdown. Uh, unless you've been living on the moon, you, you've heard about this tornado. Um, but it does. It's a great question. How do we reconcile these things? Dr. Pipa, how would you answer this question? Great practical question. Yeah, Abby, thank you for that uh, question. It's something that Christians, and particularly ministers, should be thinking about. I actually was a guest preacher and asked permission of the session to uh, change what I was going to do and preach on Luke chapter 13, where Christ addresses this issue in the first five verses. Now, on the same occasion, this is when he's been warning, calling people to repentance. On the same occasion, there was some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, there's a couple of assumptions here on the part of Jesus, and one is that uh, he doesn't shy away from the fact that these are acts of God. He deals both with a natural disaster and a humanly caused disaster, Pilate killing the Galileans for whatever reason, and then the accident where the tower falls. The Bible clearly teaches, look at the book of Job, for example. The Bible clearly teaches that uh, God is sovereign over all things and, in fact, um, intends, wills uh, for these things to happen. Second thing that Jesus is assuming here is that sometimes these acts are acts of direct judgment. And when a wicked man, uh, a murderer, is murdered violently, uh, we can pretty safely uh, assume that that was an act of uh, judgment. But generally, we look at it not in terms of individuals, but in terms of temporal judgments are demonstrations of God's anger with sin. Temporal judgments are, are indication of God's anger against sin. And so we have the flood, for example, and we have many other uh, temporal judgments. The Bible actually teaches that the miseries of this life are part of the punishment of sin. So generically, any ill suffered is because sin is in the world. And then more specifically, when these judgments come, God is demonstrating his wrath, and there will be people in those scenes that God might be punishing. But there'll also be Christians in those scenes, and God's providence works in a very complex manner. So mm -hmm. Peter says that judgment begins in the household of God. The children of Israel suffered the first, what, three plagues uh, in Egypt, and then they were spared the plagues as the judgment intensified. And so there will be Christians that will be affected in these acts, and for us, they can be chastenings, uh, they can be things to teach us patience, more about God and his glory. There's lots of reasons going on. So 
what Jesus is saying here in Luke chapter 13 is, rather than try to assign blame to someone who suffers, use the occasion to examine your own heart. Am I repenting, or am I under God's, not only his temporal judgment, but his eternal judgment? Hmm. But it's very important that we don't back down from the fact that God is sovereign. That's clearly confessed in Job after what happens to him. He says, God gave. He just lost all of his wealth, his livestock, his servants, his children. God gave. God takes away. Um, And so God does these things, but then we also understand that he, he uses second causes. He uses evil people. He doesn't put the idea into their hearts to do evil, but he works in and through them in what they have freely chosen to do, and they're actually accomplishing his purposes. Again, you see that in Job 1. Satan comes. God taunts him. Satan does exactly what God knows he's going to do, mm-hmm. and Satan is then actually thinking he is doing something on his own, uh, but he's accomplishing God's purposes. He's sinning, in, in doing so. So there's this what we call concurrence that's taking place in these evil actions. But God is not the, the um, tempter to sin. He's not the originator of sin in terms of it flows from his uh, actions, uh, but he is sovereign. Now, another thing to keep in mind, Abby and others who are listening, is the question is not why do bad things happen to good people. Mm. Uh, as I've already mentioned, these all temporal uh, maladies are part of the judgment of God on sin from Adam onward. And uh, none of us deserve anything but abject misery. Mm -hmm. And those outside of Christ, it's all of God's common benevolence that they draw a breath and have any happiness and pleasure and joy in this life. Um, And even we as Christians, we live by grace. And so it's, it's not Evil wasn't created in the world. It was very good. Evil came in the world because of sin, but it is in the world. God judges uh, through these acts. And just one clear reference is Isaiah 45, verse 7. God's the one forming light, creating darkness, causing well-being, creating calamity. And I think in the Hebrew, the word is evil. And it's not talking about sin, but these calamities that we see. And this word create has to do with the fact of of God's sovereign uh, supernatural acts. Mm. So God's sovereign. God is good. Everything that God does to a believer, Paul promises all things work together for our good, who love God and are called according to his purpose. But God's goodness also... Uh, demands that God punishes sin. He would be an evil God not to punish sin. So he's sovereign, he's good, but he hates sin, and he's going to destroy it in hell forever. One of the things that in- intrigues me about these types of issues, uh, Dr. Piper, is that something you just you said that uh, caused me to think in this direction is that we start with the presupposition that we're actually deserving <laughs> of something good from God in the first place. Um, so when these kinds of things happen, we say, where was God? If he was loving, it would, he wouldn't have 
allowed this to happen. He wouldn't have purposed to allow this to happen. He wouldn't have caused this to happen. Whatever word you want to throw in there. But the reality is that we ought to ask. That we ought to be looking at it from the other direction. The, we ought to be asking the question: Why doesn't this happen to us all the time? <laughs> because we are not naturally good. There is no one that's good. Uh, we're all evil. We're all sinners. We're all deserving the justice of God in whatever way He decides to dole that out. And so, why doesn't a tornado land on Greenville, South Carolina, and wipe out half the city? Why doesn't it land on wherever? Why doesn't an earthquake destroy half the East Coast? And it, would that do violence to God's character? No. Uh, would we be deserving of that? Absolutely. And and I think that's part of the problem. We start with the wrong assumption. We assume that we're good and deserve something good from God instead of the other way around and realize that we don't deserve anything good because of our sinful character, sinful nature. And when we do receive good, as you said, the, the, the joys of this life, the, the everyday things that we enjoy as good. We, we, we go out to a picnic with our family, and we have a nice sunny day, and we think we deserve all that. That was God's benevolence to us. You know, Bill, there's uh, something else that came to mind as you were speaking, and that is um, we often fail to look at the remarkable examples of God's providence in sparing life. Mm-hmm. For example, in more, you know, they had jacked the death toll up to 100 and something and find out it was in the 20s. That is quite remarkable with an E5 tornado that was, in fact, a mile wide on the ground for 45 minutes, I think. Or the lady in uh, Philadelphia, 61-year-old lady recovered from the rubble. And we read these stories, and we fail to think then that was God's providence that spared that person. Um, and, and every breath that I draw is God sparing me that I might serve him. Mm-hmm. And so uh, whether you've been supernaturally and wonderfully delivered or whether you're just living your life out each day, each of us has is to be mindful of the fact that uh, we serve Adonai. He is Lord and Master. He's husband. And we've been bought with our price. And therefore, Paul says, glorify God in your bodies. Mm. And I think the lesson that of, of the Luke 13 passage, and um, I had the privilege of hearing this preached a number of years ago from a graduate, actually, of this school, um, which helped me understand it in ways I never really considered. But the real lesson, as was already said, is... Don't worry yourself about all these questions. You're probably not going to be able to answer anyway. Why did God do that? Why, but why didn't he? What, okay, that's all fine and good. The real question, though, is are you ready if a tornado lands on your city to stand before God? Are you prepared? That's the question. That's the only question that really matters. Okay, what happened? That's between God and his divine counsel, and we can't answer it in that way. But we can't answer that question. And so we must be prepared, as Jesus taught, I think, in Luke 13, very clearly. Uh, don't worry about all that, but worry about, are you prepared today? So great question, Abby. I'm really glad it was written um, in, in that Dr. Piper chose to use this. Um, more could be said, and I know others have said much more about this. But I think at the end of the day, that's the issue. Um, where are you today? Are you ready? I don't think that we have enough time to do the last one, unless you want to change my mind. I don't think so, Bill. Let's just put a teaser out, and okay, in the next issue, which will be a, a month from today or whatever, mm-hmm. a month from yep. today, 
the next issue, we're going to deal with some uh, bit more uh, theologically difficult questions. One has to do with uh, God's foreknowledge, one with the cessation of the uh, charismatic uh, gifts, and one with respect to uh, the role of the covenant of, uh, of, of the law in the Mosaic Covenant. And if we have time, a question about Dr. Engelsman's book, Critiquing uh, Federal Vision. Right. And, and just so everybody knows how this system works, um, we, we received way more, far more questions that we could actually deal with in an hour program. Um, so what, I tend to, what I'm doing in my own unique structure of how I'm trying to keep track of all this is that any question we don't deal with gets rolled into the queue, as it were. It's not like we're never going to deal with it because we didn't deal with it this time. We may deal with it next time, or it might be the time after that. It might be the time. It will probably eventually get dealt with. I, I qualify that because I don't want to speak. You know, I don't want to assume. But. Let me just say this. All nine questions we have are worthy of answer, and we're going to answer them first. And let me throw out an idea, Bill, without clearing it with you ahead of Here time. Here we go. Put me on the spot. Well, no, put me on the spot. That's fine. Let's let, I like it that way. Let's let people, while we're broadcasting, this won't be live, though, so no, that they could tweet. But I can make it live. We could go live, and they could tweet. Um, so let's, let's, let we'll us play, hear from you folks we'll, if you'd like to have some interaction during the process. We'll, we'll play with that. We'll play with that. I've experimented with live podcasting in the past that it didn't always go real well and because of timing. People are at work and that kind of thing. Yeah, that's true. But um, we'll, we'll play with that idea. But just rest assured, every question we got was worthy of answer. Um, it's not a, a situation where we just don't have the time. It's a, just it's a, it's a time factor more than anything else. I've already received new questions even as today for the next one. So we, we have more than enough to deal with, and we're going to deal with them. So just be patient. Um, if you did not hear your name and question read, doesn't mean it wasn't good. Um, it's just there's only so much time in the day to do these kinds of things. And so um, we don't want to do a four-hour podcast, nor would you want to listen to one just to see if your question was read. Um, but anyway, stay tuned. Confessingourhope.com is the website. Um, if you have questions, uh, if this has sparked your interest, if you have follow-up questions, anything that we've said on this particular broadcast, fire the question in, and we will uh, consider that and take a look at that. Uh, in addition to the other questions that have been sent. So all the information is there on the website. Dr. Piper, thank you for being in and, and taking the time. I know you you prepared some of this. You looked at it ahead of time and, and selected the ones that you felt you could adequately deal with in a short period. And so thank you for being on and look forward to the next one and many more after this. Um, but this is based on the listener. You guys that are out there listening to this, if you don't write in questions, we don't have a program, at least for that week anyway so write in and keep me employed please um i need the money too so um well with that said um we do thank everyone for listening and participating those who have will be contacted by me uh, very shortly as a matter of fact and um, we'll move from there so thank you for listening to this particular edition of confessing our hope the podcast of greenville presbyterian theological seminary and god bless